Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we are speaking with Richard Vine. Richard is the first executive director of the School of Wildlife Conservation located at the African Leadership College in Kigali, Rwanda. The School of Wildlife Conservation has a very unique approach to conservation, what it calls the business of conservation, which is about creating and maintaining economic incentives for the sustainable utilization of wild resources and removing economic incentives which drive unsustainable use. We'll cover that topic in more detail during the conversation with Richard. But previously, Richard was the CEO of Olpegeta Conservancy, the largest black rhino sanctuary in East Africa and one of the most successful enterprises in the continent. He was born and brought up in Kenya and has more than 20 years of experience in conservation. Additionally, Richard has completed a number of conservation and land use related consultancies for various organizations, including Conservation Capital and the African Wildlife Foundation. Richard, welcome to Voices of Nature. Thank you. So Richard, I you know certainly didn't do your your background and all the great work you've you've done over the many decades here. Please tell us a little bit more about your background and what brought you to a career in conservation. Um, thanks, Bob. I, you know, I guess I was lucky. I was born in Kenya in an area of Western Kenya, which is famous for its tea plantations, but where there is a huge, great uh, montane rainforest called the Mao Forest. And that was my stamping ground as a kid. I spent my life in the forest fishing and catching butterflies. And for some reason or another, I was passionate about conservation from a very early age. And that morphed into uh, a real passion for marine conservation, in fact, as I grew older. So, you know, I was lucky to be brought up in an environment where I had access to all of that kind of stuff. And I think that, that, that helped me develop my passion for the natural world and want to pursue a career into it. I should say my father was totally against it. He believed that basically all wildlife was doomed in the face of human development and that there was no future in a career in conservation. So he actually did his best to persuade me not to become a conservationist. But luckily I resisted that pressure and uh, I think I was right to do so because I think um, we'll probably talk about it in a moment or two. Conservation and the stewardship of the natural world is going to become one of the biggest businesses on the planet over the next few years. And and so, uh, you know, hopefully I'm at the cutting edge of being able to help make that happen. Yeah, well, let's let's get to that point in a moment, as, as you suggested, because first I want you to tell us a little bit about the School of Wildlife Conservation, because I think that in a way sets the basis for what you just mentioned about the many entrepreneurial opportunities that come with conservation. So. Maybe first, just tell us a bit about the School of Wildlife Conservation, what it, you know, its mission, the curriculum, the types of students in it, and so on. Sure. I mean, we, I should point out that we're a relatively young institution. It was founded in 2016 with a generous grant from Jennifer Ward Oppenheimer, who sadly has passed away. She was passionate about conservation, and I think her donation was reflective of a growing sentiment that the way that conservation has been practiced at a global level hitherto has not been particularly successful. And if you look at the results 
we could argue that conservationists over the past 100 years or so have basically failed in their mission because we're still losing and have been losing for a long period of time uh, huge parts of the natural world. And biodiversity, as you know, is currently in the most threatened state it's probably ever been in since humans existed on, on planet Earth. There was, there was a, a sentiment within the institution that there was an opportunity to begin to rethink about what conservation actually meant and what we could do to remodel the sector in order to make it more likely that our, that our efforts would become more successful. And we coined the phrase, the, the business of conservation. And what we mean by that is that we believe that if properly managed and properly innovatively thought about, conservation could become a real engine in Africa for economic growth. In other words, it doesn't need to be seen as this kind of impediment to progress, which has to be removed to make way for intensive agriculture or, or other forms of human economic activity. But in fact, it represents an enormously valuable strategic asset for Africa. And this could apply globally, that if properly managed and properly invested into, could become a driver for economic growth, the creation of employment, and etc. So that's really what we're all about. We're not, we're not a school that focuses much on the ecology of wildlife or managing a national park. So we're not a typical wildlife college. We're much more interested in the economics, the, the transformation of the sector into an investable opportunity that creates economic growth and which becomes valuable in the process. So that's what we're all about. So maybe help us understand a bit more about the curriculum and the, and the mindset of the students. So is it, is it your hope that students you know, enter the private sector and essentially become a voice or an advocate for nature in, in the private sector, that, that they start integrating nature-based approaches to how companies operate? Is that, is that kind of the mindset of the school? I think that's part of it. The private sector and the way the current economic model by which the globe manages itself, we believe need to fundamentally change. We need to begin to price in the value of nature and the impact of our economic activity against nature and transform those models so that they can become supportive of nature because without nature, we all cease to exist. It's really just as simple as that. And that is a realization that we believe the planet as a whole is beginning to acknowledge. So, but that's part of it. So the private sector is part of it. And the way the private sector does its business is part of it. And the way that businesses operate is going to be absolutely critical in the transformation of the conservation sector for a variety of different reasons. But also, you know, this needs to be allied to new ways of thinking about how we achieve sustainable economic growth, how we steward our environment, how we create a basis for biodiversity to thrive and to support our ability to exist uh, on planet Earth. And that means that our approach has to be multifaceted. We have to be thinking about policy at the level of government and the regulatory environment. We have to be thinking about how conservationists themselves have become more investable and adopt a much more commercial approach, I would probably describe it as, in order to become attractive to the capital markets and to those businesses and corporates who could become investors into nature in the future. 
And, you know, at a more prosaic level, I'm sure you've seen it yourself, but I know from my own experience that when I travel around Africa and other parts of the world, I see national parks where economic opportunity is being left untapped, left on the table and unexploited. And yet these are the same national parks who are going to their governments and saying, we need continual subsidy in order to be able to survive. And, you know, helping those who operate within the public sector in the conservation, uh, in, 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 in the public sector that is responsible for the management of conservation to become more efficient commercially, to be able to exploit the economic opportunities that exist in their national parks and in other areas with a view to reducing their reliance on government subsidy and being seen as this kind of eternal burden upon government, which is something that drags resources away from other important parts of the economy, to transforming the way in which conservation is viewed and, 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 and making it become, you know, there, there are parks, I did a very quick example, I did an, a study with some colleagues of Lake Nakuru National Park in Kenya, and we uh, worked out that it was operating at around about 32% uh, commercial efficiency. In other words, the opportunities to bring money into that park that were not being exploited represented 70% of the total potential income for that park on a per annum basis. And yet the National Parks of Kenya is always struggling for cash, struggling for resources, and always begging government for support from a financial perspective. So those two, you know, making making the whole the whole sector more efficient in the way that it operates from a financial and resourcing perspective, at the same time as influencing policymakers, at the same as inculcating the private sector with a different view of how things can be done and should be done in order to mitigate the risks that ultimately the loss of biodiversity will present to their businesses. So it's, it's multifaceted. There's a lot of things to consider and a lot of areas and touch points where we can have influence. Can you maybe draw out a bit more about what the, what the commercial opportunity of these parks might look like? You know, I think the knee-jerk reaction is that, you know, commercial opportunities is, you know, more roads, you know, more intensive development of, in the use of natural resources through mining and, and extraction and things like that. What is kind of this, this commercial approach that you're envisioning that also respects, protects, and enhances nature? I mean, I think it's a very important point you're bringing up. I'm not, I'm not here talking about what I would describe as kind of over-exploitation or over-tourism. I'm talking here about sustainable management and use of natural resources, be they national parks or, you know, community-owned conservancies or the marine environment, which often, more often than not, is, is afforded very little protection of any type. So what I think I'm really talking about is just more efficiency in the first instance. So a simple example, going back to the Lake Nakuru National Park uh, example that I gave you, you know, when you arrive at the gate, there is no opportunity from a retail perspective to buy a map or to buy some sustainably produced merchandise like a t-shirt or a cap. There's nothing like that. I know from my experience on Olpegeta that when we, when we developed retail opportunities, we made significant amounts of money, all of which then could be allocated back to the running uh, of the, the operations of the conservancy. 
Um, so that's the simple example. And I'm, you know, I, I would suggest also that from a commercial perspective, reducing impact can sometimes make areas of such as national park more valuable. And there's some good examples of that where increasing park entrance fees um, off the back of the delivery of a high quality product where there is minimal impact, where there is minimal disturbance to wildlife and et cetera, can sometimes be a far better way of bringing money into those areas than simply you know, making more roads or exploiting them in other ways. But I would also say there's some more subtle approaches. You know, this perhaps doesn't apply so much to national parks, but in the conservancy movement across Africa, and particularly in Kenya, but other parts of Africa as well, we have developed an integrated approach to land management, which aims to make land as productive as we can possibly make it. And what I mean by productive is profitable, but also, you know, its ability to employ people, pay taxes, and et cetera, et cetera, by developing an integrated approach to land management. And what I mean by an integrated approach, and again, Old Pegeta would be a good example, is we took a decision at a very early stage in the development of that conservancy that we were not going to be dependent upon philanthropy for our survival, which is a difficult thing to do when you're looking after the biggest herd of black rhinos in Africa, because that's an expensive, an expensive operation to be running. And the way we did it was by retaining 6,000 head of cattle that we managed in a manner that was entirely sustainable from an ecological perspective. In other words, the cattle lived alongside the wildlife. And effectively, what that did was reduce the opportunity cost of setting aside land for wildlife. In other words, we had an income stream from cattle, which meant that we could, which we could then use to support the ecological integrity and wildlife management of the conservancy. And we did that in a manner which didn't compromise. In fact, it probably contributed to the, the ecological quality of the area. So, so there, there's innovation that also needs to happen. And that's another, so reducing the, um, the opportunity costs of setting aside land for conservation. You often hear the argument, places should be plowed up to grow wheat because that's going to be more profitable than keeping wildlife. But if you can find ways of having it all together, which is actually what I think is happening in the way that conservation is being thought about, we're no longer thinking of conservation as being something that only happens in national parks. We're beginning to think of it as a, a way of life. We're beginning to think of sustainability, generally speaking, rather than wildlife happens in national parks and there's nothing else apart from humans living outside of national parks, which I think is the sort of old way that conservation was probably thought about. And I think that integrated approach that I've talked about gives you an example of that, that movement beginning to evolve. And then the other point I would just make finally is that, you know, as people recognize the importance of biodiversity as climate change and nature-based solutions to climate change start to evolve, the financing opportunities, the opportunities for wilderness areas to draw upon those areas of uh, potential revenue generation in the future, I think, is ginormous. And so, you know, we need to be able to exploit them. People think of climate change often as a massive threat to the planet, and of course it is. But it's also a massive opportunity for uh, areas which are able to offer themselves as nature-based solutions to produce carbon credits or in the future, perhaps biodiversity credits and et cetera. And, you know, that is a, 
that is, in my view, a commercial opportunity that we should all be working very hard to exploit. So I have to ask a very maybe pointed question, which is you, you, you've talked about this, you know, the, the model of land management, model of conservation shifting and the mindset of people shifting. But is it shifting quickly enough to scale in a big enough way to, frankly, meet the urgency of the moment? I mean, you know this better than I. Obviously, all kinds of ecosystems in Africa and around the world are at risk. Climate change, extreme weather events, all this is being impacted by the, the, the burdens we've and the destruction we've put on nature. Are we changing how we interact with nature quickly enough to start heading off these, frankly, potentially catastrophic consequences that we're facing? No, we're not. But is the, is the pace of change accelerating rapidly? I would argue yes. The other point I would make is that nature is, given a chance, nature recovers incredibly quickly. And, you know, there may well be, I mean, don't get me wrong, the threats that we face are, are enormous. Are we doing enough to mitigate those threats at the moment? No. And will a lot of sort of nature be destroyed before we turn things around? The answer is yes. Will there be significant ecological collapse across key areas of biodiversity importance, such as the marine environment? I think yes. But once we do begin to turn things around, can we recover, can nature recover quickly? And I think the answer is yes. And it might be different from what it used to be. In other words, you know, as a result of climate change, there may be different species of fish living in the areas you know, living in living in areas previously utilized by other species that have had to move because the sea has become warmer or whatever. You know, things will change, but can nature recover quickly if given half a chance? The answer is yes. So I suppose my answer is my answer is we're not moving rapidly enough at the moment. The pace of change, however, is accelerating. The seriousness with which the world is beginning to grapple with these issues is increasing on a daily basis. Are we going to lose a lot of nature until we turn things around? I'm sure we are. Do we have the capacity to turn things around? Yes, I think we do. And when is that going to happen? I'm not quite sure. But when it does happen, I think we'll have enough left to recover. So I think we've, we've got some way further downwards to go before we start to climb back up. Um, but I'm confident that in 10, 20 years, we will be climbing back up. And I think that offers hope. Well, I must say thank you for that answer because that, uh, that, that restored a bit of hope in my mind as well. And so I, I really appreciate that perspective. So now maybe let's bring it back to the School of Wildlife Conservation. Where do you see the, the role of the school, the role of the students, their, their future careers fitting into that or even accelerating that, that turnaround? The first thing is if you, if you talk, and here I'm talking very much about Africa, but if you talk about you talk about, if you talk to conservation practitioners in Africa, uh, here I'm including the kind of the big NGOs, the African parks, the nature conservancies, all those guys, as well as the sort of smaller operators. The one thing that they consistently tell us as a school is that they are very concerned about the, about the lack of emergence of a pipeline of high quality, skilled African conservation leaders for the future. That, that is a real concern throughout the sector. So the African leadership group is all about creating those leaders and creating an entrepreneurial 
approach to leadership. And then our job as a school is to inculcate those young leaders, those young future leaders of Africa with the skills from a conservation perspective to be able to, to either enter conservation as conservation practitioners, or if they choose to become bankers or industrialists or whatever, to have enough knowledge of what is required from a risk mitigation perspective, if nothing else, in order to be able to run their businesses successfully from an environmental and sustainability perspective. So we are not prescriptive to our students about where we think they should be working. That for us is for them to choose what we want them to know at all levels. So we have an undergraduate program, we have an MBA program, and we have a professional development program. At all of those levels, we want all of our students to know what it means to lose biodiversity, to know what the opportunities are that are beginning to evolve and in some cases exist to steward biodiversity more effectively and indeed start to position it as an investable opportunity. And then we leave it up to them. Some will go into government, some will go into conservation, some will go into NGOs, some will go into the private sector, some will go into carbon companies, some will go into companies almost on the face of it, completely unrelated to the world of conservation. But I think that's probably our point. We believe the economic models that have traditionally been deployed globally are going to have to change. We're going to have to price in the value of nature and we're going to have to have people and human capacity who understand exactly what that means. I think one of the most pressing issues, because I don't think, you know, when it comes to resourcing conservation areas, I don't think money is actually the issue. I think there's plenty of money out there. I think the capital markets and the corporate world are queuing up to try to invest in the conservation. They simply don't know how to do it. And the frameworks for them to be able to do it in terms of measuring impact, being effective in the way that they deploy their resources, understanding what biodiversity means, all those, all those notions and concepts are just completely alien to the corporate and capital markets. Yet they're the ones who are going to provide a lot of the resources in future. So bringing those markets and the world of conservation closer together so that they can talk to each other, so that conservation can make itself more, inv more investable, more investor-ready, is, I think, probably the sort of biggest challenge that we have. And, and you know, as I said, if we, can, if we can create people who do an MBA with all of the sort of traditional elements of an MBA around which is wrapped, conservation thought and, and case studies and opportunities around carbon markets and biodiversity markets and et cetera, then we believe we'll be creating people who will be able to exploit the opportunities that will result in biodiversity becoming investable and therefore better stewarded as a growth opportunity in the future. So you, you've used a very important phrase a few times in this conversation, and that phrase is assigning assigning value to nature. In my mind, that concept is essentially ground zero for, A, how businesses are going to better interact with society, but also how businesses are going to play a role with, you know, saving nature, turning, turning this crisis around that you mentioned before. So when you say assigning a value to nature, in, 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 the, in the most layman's of terms, what does that mean? And why is it so important? Again, I would, I would say this is going to come from two perspectives. Let's talk about the, the sort of layman's way of 
explaining it. And the best two examples that I can think of, but I'm sure that there are many more, there must be, is the value of insect pollination to crop production. Across Europe, best estimates have it as a result of habitat loss, increasing use of herbicides and pesticides, and the whole industrialized farming movement. As a result of all of that, insect populations over the last 30 years, which is not a long period of time, have reduced by somewhere in the region of 70 to 75%. When I then say that the value of insect pollinated crops globally is worth somewhere in the region of six to $700 billion a year, that I think is a simple way of explaining the value of nature. In other words, if insects don't exist, if pollinating insects don't exist, our ability to produce crops potentially is hugely compromised. And the, the economic value that attaches to those crops uh, is, is massive. Similarly, if you look at the fisheries of the world, I hear talking about the marine environment in particular, but I think it's somewhere in the region of one and a half billion people globally depend upon coral reefs, mangroves, and the blue economy for their livelihoods. Well, if we destroy coral reefs, if we continue to unsustainably exploit mangroves, and we overexploit the marine environment from a fishing perspective, and those environments suffer ecological collapse, one and a half billion people are going to suddenly be without a livelihood. And those people are going to, one way or another, become a massive burden to future society. So, you know, these are the things that are actually happening. It's not that we're speculating about them. There's good evidence to show that tipping points, as they call them across many different sort of environments and ecologies, are being rapidly approached as a result of climate change, over-exploitation, chemicals, pollution, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we're probably closer to many of them than we actually think. If we don't draw back from them, the economic consequences are going to be ginormous. So I think, you know, that's, that's a reasonably simple way of putting it. But how, how do we actually make businesses that are after profit take all of that into account? Well, I think there's two ways. I think we need to better educate businesses of the risk that they face if there is the kind of ecological collapse that I'm talking about. Um, I think businesses are beginning to understand it. They're beginning to understand they need to mitigate that risk. And they can do that in a number of different ways. They can become donors to conservation. They could become investors into conservation areas and et cetera, et cetera. But I think the other way it will happen, which is probably a necessity, is through senior government-level regulation. You know, I think businesses are going to have to be told that you are going to have to be neutral or, or at, at best, uh, at best positive, the very least neutral when it comes to your biodiversity and carbon impact. And if you don't find a way of doing that, you're going to pay a price. And however that price is determined will be something for discussion, but it's going to happen. It's happening rapidly. So businesses, again, are aware of that and they're trying to get ahead of the game. And that's what I, when I say there's a lot of money out there, that's why there is a lot of money out there. The problem is how you deploy that money effectively. And that's not something yet that we're particularly good at doing. And that for us is the role of the school. We have to find the people with the capacity to talk the talk and do the complex work that is going to be necessary to make the world of conservation deeply investable so that the capital markets with all of the regulation they face and all of the risk they face from a biodiversity loss perspective, 
make them capable of carrying out the investments that they would like to make in order to mitigate those risks and to to comply with with the regulation which is rapidly evolving so so i think that's the way it's going to happen and it does beg the question what do we do to make sure that we have the capacity from a human perspective because without that human capacity none of this will happen because you know if you want to create a carbon project or develop a biodiversity credit or whatever that is complex stuff and then explaining it and creating the frameworks to make it investable from a capital markets perspective is also complex stuff so you need high quality human beings in the conservation sector but also within the corporate sector who understand all of this who can actually make it happen and that if you were to ask me to define it is the role that we as SOWC think we should be playing that's great so let me ask a bit of a follow-on question to that which would be how, how can all of us or how can listeners of this podcast play a role in that effort even if we're not a corporate executive or going to this you know really cool program like yours and getting an MBA like just kind of day to day how can how can all of us do a better job maybe just helping businesses be more in line with nature helping our own lives frankly be more in line with nature so that we yeah, can accelerate this turnaround that we were talking about a few minutes ago. So I just I think there's hundreds of ways. I mean, I, I have a garden and lucky to have quite a big garden, but about twenty percent of that garden is set aside as a wildflower sort of meadow because I'm trying to encourage insects. I and mean, it's a simple thing. I persuaded my wife the other day to buy a soda stream so that I don't continually have to be buying plastic bottles of, of, of sparkling water. Amen to that. I, I mean, I'm, there's just so many. That... I'm a user. I'm a soda <laughs> too. So amen to that. But, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? There are so many little things that we could all be doing. You know, I, I talk continually to people in Kenya. You say, oh, you can't invest into an electric car in this country. Well, it's nonsense. My bank manager has an electric car and he reckons it's the most fantastic thing in the world. He he drives it. Um, he reckons, you know, the range is sufficient. He can charge it at home. And, and occasionally there's a power cut and he might be a little bit inconvenienced, but, you know, it works. So it's nonsense to say that it doesn't work. So we've got to be a little bit proactive in it. And then I think there's other stuff as well that people just need to get ahead of. You know, I live on the, uh, I live in Kenya where most of the electricity is actually pretty green electricity because it's produced by geothermal and, and hydro, hydroelectric schemes. But in large parts of Africa, that's obviously not the case. And yet we live in a country or part of the world where we get 12 hours of sunshine most days and solar technology has moved ahead so far and has become so affordable that actually even if you're on the grid which is relatively inexpensive it now is beginning to make commercial sense to invest into solar we could all be doing that and we'd be saving money in the process so i, I just think there's tons of stuff we can all do and i just think we've got to get proactive about it but i think probably it begins with understanding which increasingly i think people are doing understanding where we are from a from an ecological perspective and understanding how close the world is to these kinds of ecological tipping points that I talked about earlier and, and the consequences of us breaching or those tipping points actually becoming reality and the enormous, ginormous uh, disaster that would be. I think people have to be educated and then people will start to do the little things that actually will make a big difference ultimately. So one last question, Richard. And maybe let let all of our imaginations run wild through you, but you know, take us take us for a moment into that one most special time in nature. Like when you 
that really just impacted you and has stayed with you? Like when you close your eyes and you think of nature, like what's that moment in your life that always comes to mind? <laughs> Going back to something I was saying a little bit earlier about the power of nature to recover. When we created the old Petit Conservancy, previous to that, it had been an old cattle ranch. And we had to do a lot of stuff to kind of recover it. And but prior to that, the um, all predators had been considered pests. So lions and hyenas in particular, because they predated upon our cattle, were literally shot on sight. I mean, you can hardly imagine it now. But if a lion ever put its head above the parapet or killed one of our cattle, we immediately shot it. We had a we used to have an old book which used to record cattle movements and it sort of kept all of the records of the cattle herds and it was filled in religiously once a month. And we had a column which was called Vermin. And that's where we put, you know, the the, the numbers of lions killed, the number of numbers of hyenas killed. Anyway, long story short, we then created the old Pegeta Conservancy. And it was amazing for me how quickly nature recovered. It was amazing for me how quickly predator numbers recovered uh, to the point that we became one of the, um, we, we had one of the highest densities of lions ever recorded in Kenya alongside our cattle. But anyway, leave that aside. I was driving one day down a road which previously had been overgrazed or in an area which previously had been overgrazed where there was never any wildlife. And I turned the corner and there sitting on the road was a pride of, a pride of lions who had moved into the area from from goodness knows where, I think that's probably the one seminal moment in my life when I really thought to myself, you know, what we can achieve here given half a chance is is actually pretty stupendous. So and I, I just remember turning around, coming around this corner into this area which previously had been sort of overgrazed and highly degraded. There was never any wildlife there. And sitting in the middle of the road, I was actually with my boss. He wasn't my boss, but he was a colleague. And we were sitting together and we drove around the corner. There was a pride of lions sitting in the middle of the road. And, I mean, he actually looked at me and said, you've put these here on purpose to kind of impress me, haven't you? And of course, I hadn't. But he was as sort of flabbergasted and as amazed at me that, you know, given half a chance, nature just has this incredible ability to recover. And, you know, what you can do, the stupendous results that you can achieve when you give it a chance are just extraordinary. And so that was probably my one big seminal moment in my life. When it comes to conservation and, and, and the power of recovery, which I think is really, really critical for us all to sort of acknowledge and understand. We're not completely lost. We've made a real mess, but we haven't completely lost. That's a perfect way to end this conversation, Richard. Thank you so much for all your, your insights. As I mentioned before, your, your, your inspiration of the day to me it really, really meant a lot. And just for the, the wonderful stories you told. And so thank you. And uh, I just appreciate all the work you've been doing and, and just so inspired by all the work you've done. Perfect. No, that's great, Bob. Thanks very much for, uh, for taking an interest. It's been great to, uh, to talk. Well,